you people don't love the Word of God. Now, we're not going to go through Psalm 117. Um, and one, uh, Psalm 119 is a great psalm, but it might be a bit too long even for me. Uh, so instead of going through one of those psalms, I have an idea. I want to go through three. Three different psalms. 126 through 128. And you know how I can get preachy. I've already been requested by somebody <clears throat> to make a very short sermon because they're hungry. And then they were talking about food and it made me hungry. So how can Don, I could just see somebody, how are you, Donnie, going to be able to get through three sermons when you can make a 45-minute sermon on five verses? And now you want to go through three chapters. Oh, ye of little faith. We're going to get it done. We're going to go through the, these chapters, 126 through 28 of Psalms, and it, it's really cool. I learned something new about this. Um, since we're going to be looking at Psalms, we're going to look at this practical poetry, and we're going to do all this at the same time looking at these scriptures and see how to raise better children, live longer, love your spouse well, and even sleep better. Sounds too good to be true, but wait, there's more, okay? I know it sounds ambitious, so we're going to get right to it. I want you to go ahead and turn into your, uh, your Bible. Uh, you can use the YouVersion app or your physical Bibles. Now, when we get to some of this, it might be a little easier to be a physical Bible, so you can just turn pages. Um, but I want you to notice something right in 120, which we're starting in 126 today. But Psalms 120 is the first of 15 Psalms that have a certain title. From Psalms 120 to Psalm 134, all 15 Psalms begin by telling you what they are. What are they called? Anybody, what's it say? Songs of Ascent. What does that mean? And so I, I started looking at In Hebrew, the, the word here means to go up. The songs that you go up to. Um, it's the same root word of offering. So these are the songs of an offering that go up to God. And there's a reason for this double meaning of actually going up and an offering. In the law of God, uh, God decreed that every Jewish male would have to go to Jerusalem three times a year. And if you've been to Israel, you no matter, no matter what direction you come from, the, the Temple Mount is up higher. Okay? So you have to ascend. You have to go up to go into the temple. So the, the idea of that was physically you're going up, you're walking up into the temple, but you're also on the journey of spiritually going up closer to God. It's a spiritual higher ground of getting closer to God. Once you were in the temple, you would climb the southern steps to the temple mount. There were 15 wide steps, and they alternated between really wide and some narrower, narrower ones. And there is a lot of evidence to suggest that the pilgrims, the people who would come, they would sing certain songs on their way up these steps to give their offering to God. You, you can see the pictures here of what's there. So on the right here, you can see there's narrow steps and large steps. Today, we call that a tripping hazard because they're not the same. Uh, but they would walk up them, and you can see where they are on that left there. These psalms, these songs of ascent were songs familiar, and these people would sing them together while on their way 
to the temple. And, and think about this then. So if the people of God were doing this, if it was normal and traditional for them, that means when Jesus went to the temple as a young kid and all the way up to adults, what do you think he was singing on his way up these steps? But the songs of ascent. Jesus had a three-year ministry with the disciples where he would go to Jerusalem as many as nine times, and he would have sang these songs, these psalms, these poetries with his disciples. There's one more thing I want to say about the songs of ascent. I, I started looking into it because, honestly, I'd never heard of the songs of ascent until this last week. And then I just kept reading about them, and I, I just really started liking them more. Um, the 15 psalms that are in this Songs of Ascent naturally are set into five sets of three. So there's three psalms that always go together. And each of these cycles has a very similar pattern. And you can see it in, your, in the U version. You can see it on your bulletin. The first psalm in the cycle talks about trouble. The second psalm in the cycle talks about trust. And then the third one's going to talk about triumph. And they all go together in this way. So they... You can't just pick one. You've got to have all three to make the full picture. And I think it's very worth pointing out because all of us, when we are walking in our faith, when we're growing in our faith, we are searching to go into higher grounds, to ascend closer into a relationship with God. And that means no matter where we are at in our faith journey, we are on this cycle. We are either in that trouble cycle where we're feeling all these troubles of life and calamities. We're in the trust where we're learning to grow more in our trust and faith. Or we're in the triumph where we're experiencing the victory of our faith. The good news is, no matter where you are at in this cycle, God understands. Scripture is going to speak to each one of us in those things. Okay, so that's what the songs of ascent are. Now turn to... Psalm 126. It's the first of a three cycle, like we just said. And so what is Psalm 126 going to be about? We just talked about it in the cycle. What is it? Trouble. That's right. So listen for the trouble when you, when you hear the Scripture. Um, Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back His exiles to Jerusalem. Is there trouble there? Exiles. So they've been out. Okay. Um, his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and sang for joy, and the other nations said, What amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What a joy. Now remember, we're singing this on our ascent. Restore our fortunes. What's the trouble there? They don't have anything. They're destitute in a sense. Lord, and streams renew the desert. As streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but sing as they return with harvest. What's the trouble? They're weeping and crying there. Um, but they will sing as they return with harvest. Look at verse 5 and 6 there. Tears, weep. That's really the pinnacle of the troubles here. How many times do you end up working in and through pain? Don't you have to keep going? Now, sometimes we do it willingly by choice and at advice against what our wives have told us. Like, right, Rod? Yeah. Sometimes we don't need to work in the pain and we actually need to go see the doctor. Okay. But usually we, we don't feel well, and so what do we need to do? Go to work. 
You still need to work through it. You see? So we know what it's like to work in and through. And the trouble here is there's labor. In the Garden of Eden, there was labor, but it wasn't painful. It wasn't bad. It wasn't hurtful. But here, because we're in a fallen, sinful world, there is pain in our labor. Working can be very hard, especially when you look at your paycheck and think, they took how much out of what I made? That's all that I get? No one wants to stand back after a long day of labor and see nothing accomplished. It says right here, through your work, you will shed tears and weep. This is very practical psalms. But if we just stopped here, that'd be a very sad psalm. Which is why we can't stop in just one chapter. Remember, I promised you, not only are we going to see all this cycle here, but you're going to learn how to raise godly children. You're going to learn how to, the secret of getting a good night's sleep and loving your spouse better. And so if Psalm 126 is about trouble, what does 127 mean? Trust. Okay, look at and listen to Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late night, anxiously working for the food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. I, we just said that this chapter is going to be about trust, okay? Look at the title. Who wrote it? Anybody, if you have it open, who wrote Psalm 127? Solomon. Solomon wrote it. I think that's important because 127 starts off with building a house. And Solomon built the brand new temple. He built his own palace. He rebuilt a lot of parts of Jerusalem. 1 Kings 6 tells us all that. He spent six years building the new temple. I, I think he would understand about the labor and the work put into building a house. And what does he say here? If you build it alone, it's worthless. Solomon knew the struggles and troubles of building a proper house. So the first question after reading this, who is building your house? And I'm not talking about the physical home dwelling, okay? Twice Solomon says that if the Lord isn't building your house, you're working in vain. Who is building your house and what are you building it on? When you build something, you've got to make sure you've got a proper foundation, right? You want a strong foundation so when troubles come, 126, your house can stand and test or trust that it's built the right way. This guy, we just know what happened in Florida, right? The hurricane came through. This guy wanted to make sure his house did not get torn away. And so he put ratchet straps on his roof and strapped it down into the grounds. Smart man. <laughs> Maybe. Man, strapping it to the ground is good, but it's not enough. Okay. The house needs to be anchored not just to dirt, but to a proper foundation. Every house needs a good foundation. If you don't have a good foundation, your house could look like this. Look at how it is sunk. Because they skipped corners, they 
didn't use as much concrete, and they didn't put it just right. And what happened because they were trying to cut costs? Well, the other house that did it the proper is standing true. This is not in the hurricane. This is out west somewhere. This just happened, and the house started sinking. Every house needs a good foundation. And if you don't build it the right way, you're wasting your time. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain and the torrents, the trouble, and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. It is built on trust. Trust in God. And in that section of Matthew, Jesus talks about the work. What do we got to do? Build a house. But where do we build it? We make sure it is anchored and living on the real foundation that is only found in Jesus. Trouble is coming. I've said it many times. I've heard many other people say, trouble is coming for Christians in America. It is coming to the Christian families. And if you really don't believe that, look at what society is teaching our children. Look what society is pressuring on what relationships should look like. Look what the world is shoving down and trying to make Christians change from the Word of God to the feelings of man. Trouble is coming. And trouble is coming stronger than a hurricane Ian. Okay? If your house, your foundation, your life, spiritual life, is not built upon God, then your home, your life, your faith is going to collapse. And no amount of strapping it down is going to help. And remember, these are songs of ascent, right? A group of travelers has finally made it to Jerusalem to one of the feasts. See, I'm talking about food again. And, and it took a lot of work, took a lot of distance, overcoming formidable hardships. When they were traveling back then, they didn't have cars with locked doors. They would walk and journey, and there were bandits because you were taking an offering to the temple, and so people would want to rob you and steal that. It, I just go back to that. Don't go back, Vicky, but think about that house. Whenever a guy straps something down, what's he do after he's done? That's not going anywhere. If you don't say that, it'll fall down, okay? You, you have to do that. Okay, so these guys who are on this pilgrimage back then, they get to Jerusalem. Don't you want to, don't you just know these guys? We outran three bandits, and we still made it. We made it on time. We only had to make two pit stops, because I made sure the family caravan did not stop a third time. You know, we, we kind of brag about the accomplishments and what we did to get there. Hey, we, we went all night. We walked all night long. My, my parents, um, we had family in Colorado, and Mom was out there with Grandma as she was um, passing away, going through that. And when my dad and my two brothers, or my brother and I, were going to go out there with him, that 18-hour trip we did in 17. How? It's called sinning. We, dad did a little bit of speeding there. We didn't stop for anything but a bathroom, and then you ran back out. Because, and you know what happened when we got to Colorado? You should have seen us. We went right through and we're passing the cars. We were talking about it. That's what these guys are doing in Jerusalem. They're on the songs of ascent. It's a lot of travel. And they're going to swell with pride and accomplishments. Look what I did as I came to the temple. Look what I've done. But who? Now, 
How fast did you get here? T- type things. Then through the noise of the crowd, someone would strike up the tune. Unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord watches over the city. Forget your accomplishments. On this ascent, look back to God. Eugene Peterson said it this way. No matter how hard they had struggled to get there, no matter what they did in the ways of heroics, fending off bandits, clubbing lions, crushing wolves, that is not what is to be sung. 127 insists on the perspective where our own effort is sidelined and God's work takes center stage. When I read Eugene's um, statement there, I started thinking about parenting. How many of you have had just an easy time trying to get all your kids ready for church on Sunday morning? It doesn't work that way, does it? So how does this verse, this chapter, apply to parenting? Parenting is hard work. There are plenty of early mornings and late nights. Being a Christian parent does not mean you don't you get to bypass all the troubles. Believing parents, Christian parents, are going to work just as hard, sleep just as little, and be just as anxious. A Christian parent goes through trouble, but it won't be in vain, empty, or worthless. If all you're looking at is trying to raise a, a successful child, you've already failed. That's not the purpose. The purpose of godly parenting is to raise up godly children. Whether they're successful in the world doesn't matter because this world is going to fall away. I'd rather them be successful in faith than in business. And we need to raise that up. You want to have a better child? You want to have a child that when they're living out on their own, their faith is strong and secure on the foundation of Jesus. And so when the storms come in this world that says, you've got to do this, you've got to accept this, and they can say, no, my life is built on Jesus. That's proper parenting. That's the reason for it. We go through all this work because I want to see my children standing strong on Jesus. Charles Swindoll puts it this way. Work, strive, fret, worry, plan, strain all you wish. But if a relationship with the Lord is not the very center of your home and obedience to His Word doesn't guide every decision, no amount of your additional effort can preserve it from falling apart. Really what he's saying? Do all that you want, but if it's not centered on Christ, it's in vain. It's worthless. So it's going to be hard work as parents, right? But notice in the same thing, it's not just about the trouble. I told you this is about trust. Look at verse 2. God gives what? Rest to his loved ones. To those who hear and obey, to those who are journeying into that faith, deeper faith with him, that is good news. How many of you moms want rest? You just... Rebecca's like, mm, me. You want rest. Some moms really need to hear that. You want to sleep better? Let the Lord build your house instead of you trying to contain and control. Set your household focused on God and all your efforts will not be empty. Don't focus on the sports your kids are in. Just don't. I, I loved baseball. I could hit a home run. But what does that matter in eternity? 
I was in county honors band. What does that help me in eternity? I loved it. It was fun. I think kids should be in it. But if that's the focus, don't focus on attaining the sports or the attaining more money or the material goods. In the, in the end, it all breaks or falls away. If it's not focused on the Lord, it's empty. Solomon moves from talking about the godly households in general to being godly parents. According to 1 Kings 11.3, Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. This is why I say he's the smartest dumb man. Okay? He had a lot of knowledge, but he was dumb. Um, as crazy and as stupid as that is, you have to understand, Solomon knew what it was like to have children. Okay? You, you've got that many. But look what he said in verses 3 through 5. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. Children are born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. What we have here, Solomon, arguably the foremost expert on parenting, bad and good, what does this say about our sons and daughters? They are a gift. Some days it's harder to believe that. Okay? The children, this is why whenever somebody brings a brand new baby, I've got to hold them. Because they're a gift. One of my favorite parts of the gift is they go back to your house. That's so great. But children are a gift. Kids are not burden or a punishment from God. They are a reward. And many dads need to be reminded of this point when you're traveling, doing vacations or whatever. Children are a reward. They are a gift. And according to verses 4 and 5, they are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. What does that mean? How are children like arrows? Arrows. Well, arrows must be sharpened and shaped. <laughs> Which, side note, that means sometimes our kids can be a little dull. Yeah. Nobody just goes out into the forest and picks up a stick and says, hey, this is a perfect arrow as it is. Th that's ridiculous, right? Our children start off being beautiful and perfect, and then they turn into their parents. They grow from what we are. They are going to sin. No matter what you do, no matter how you try to raise them, your children will choose to sin. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked have turned away from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. You hold these precious little babies, and you are not sitting there thinking, one day you're going to sin against me and... You're going to choose Satan over Jesus, and you're going to go to hell. We don't think that. But isn't that what they're going to do? Because why? This world is full of sin, and it looks good, it sounds good, and they're going to choose that. It doesn't take long for kids to lie. Did you touch that? No. A two-year-old, where did they learn to lie? You could be the greatest parent, and your child will still choose to lie. Proverbs twenty two fifteen says, A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it far away. Do you know what that says? Spanking is good. I want to throw that in there specifically for today. Kids, 
Discipline, physical discipline is good. The Bible says so. Parents, you want to raise godly children. They need, that is awesome. Kids need boundaries. They need boundaries. Whether they agree to them or not, whether they like them or not, doesn't matter. They need direction. And adults, it is your job to shape, to sharpen those kids, to get them ready. You are the primary discipline maker of your children, not the schools. You are the primary spiritual leader of your children's lives, not the church. Dustin's job is to come alongside you and help you sharpen and shape your kids. He's not to do it for you. He is a... Don't take this wrong. He is a tool. Okay? But he's a good tool when used in the right way with what you are already doing. If it's all left to him, you have failed your children, not him. Parents, you want to raise godly children, you get them focused on sharpening them and shaping them for God. So arrows must be shaped and sharpened. Arrows must also be aimed. It is easy to get obsessed with aiming our kids towards the wrong targets. We see it all the time. How are you defining success for your kids? Is it athletics or academic excellence? We have lots of parents all over this nation who want to get their kids in all the sports or they want to get them in all the academic activities. And nothing's wrong with that. But is that the target? What target are you pointing your children to? And really, I want you to just stop, whether it's your children, your grandchildren, or children around you, what is their life pointed at? There's a lot of um, talk about letting kids choose what they want to be like. You ask a four-year-old, what do they want to be? Where is Beckham? What does Beckham want to be? A dinosaur. There's no schooling that teaches you how to be a dinosaur. Because you can't be a dinosaur. But, do you know what his parents are doing? They indulge that. But then they shape and focus him, aim him towards something that's even better. Yeah, he's a kid. He's going to be a dinosaur. That's great. But what else beyond that? We need to help kids point them, aim them to the right thing. Thankfully, I had my Uncle Jim. When I didn't have a dad in my life, my Uncle Jim kept trying to point me, aim me. And Uncle Jim kept telling me, you're going to be a preacher and this is what you need to do. From age three, I was told I was going to be a preacher by my mom and my uncle and other family members. They started aiming me at this task. When I was in junior high, do you think I wanted to be a preacher? No. I wanted to be a lawyer. They make a lot of money, and they like to argue. That's me. But I always had in the back of my mind, God wants me to be... A preacher. Then I got into high school and I wanted to be a band teacher. No, they don't make enough money. So then I wanted to be an architect. They make a lot of money and it's fun to draw and doodle and and I had fun doing that. But in the back of my head there was this pointing, this aiming at listening to what God wants for me. And it took even a a teacher, an elder in my church who was also a teacher and helped me with my CAD cam. You know, I was doing architecture. I was going to do it. That was fun. 
And he says, are you going to listen to your wallet or are you going to listen to God? Aim to me again. We need to be aiming our children towards the things of God. Not CEOs, not sports athletes, but at God. So arrows must be aimed. What else do they need to be? This is the hard part. Arrows must be released. In order for our children to do what God has called them to do, we have to let them go. After you shape them and sharpen them, after you aim them in the right direction, but at some point you have to knock them in the bowstring and release them into the world. That is scary. You look at the world right now, I don't want any of the kids in here to go into that. I don't. There's so much junk out there. There's so much temptation. There's so much sin that's being celebrated and endorsed. I don't want any of our kids out there because I don't want them to fall prey to that. So I don't want to release. But you don't release until you've sharpened and shaped. And then you aim the proper way. And when you do that, you hit the target when you release them. No one is blessed if they stay in the quiver. A warrior is not good if his quiver is full and during the army is advancing on him. In the war, what's the job? To take down the targets. And if you stand there, hey, I've got a full quiver, use them. The enemy is advancing, and guess what children are? They are a gift. And one of the best ways to thwart the schemes of Satan is to raise children up in the ways of the Lord and see how they stand to God's principles amidst all the darkness out there. When we see children standing on the principles of God in the school saying, I don't care what you say, this is what God says, and I'm going to live this way. When the, their um, employer is saying, well, we want you to say this or endorse this, no, I will lose my job because I will not change what the God's Word says and my life is founded upon that. We need parents raising up their children so we can look at the targets they're hitting at and seeing success. That is what we need. Not this namby-pamby stuff that's saying, I want you to get better grades and get in all the sports. And Faith pointed at Jesus. You can use all those sports. You can use all the academics. But if that doesn't support the target of living for Jesus, what have we done? There, there's a game that kids used to play. How many of you remember, um, oh, I just forgot what they're called, those jarts. You know what jarts are? They were these big metal spikes with a plastic fin on them, and you would throw them into hula hoops on the other side of the yard. What did most kids start doing, especially boys? You throw it up, straight up as high as you can and see who stands there the longest before it comes down and impales you. When you don't aim that jart, you die. That's really what happens. And because of dumb boys, those were outlawed, pretty much. When we don't aim our children the proper way, it leads to disaster. Just like a jarred thrown carelessly into the air. So we've looked at trouble, and now we see trust. When we trust in God's plan, when we trust in what He says about parenting, 
when we place our household focused on Him, we're going to see our faith and our, our whole focus on God is going to build. And so that builds this trust. So we've looked at trouble. We've looked at trust. What's the next one? Triumph. Psalm 128 shows the result of letting God build your house. Let's see what the blessings we receive, the triumphs from the builder of our house. Psalm 128. Blessed are all who fear the Lord and walk in obedience to Him. I, real quick. doesn't say walk in knowledge. It doesn't say walk in belief. It says walk in obedience. And obedience is a sign that you truly believe. All right. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine with your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children peace beyond Israel. In this section, I had to learn a little bit more Hebrew again. Um, there are two words that are translated blessed in this section. In verses 1 and, 20, uh, 1 and 2, the word is asher. And it describes a sense of happiness, uh, of joy that comes to us when we are blessed, when we follow what God says. This happens to us, living in a good relationship with God. Look at the blessings, the specific one. Asher, uh, blessed with fruitful labor. You're going to enjoy the fruits of your labor. When you fear the Lord, you're going to get a fruitful harvest for your labor. You won't have to have your life be useless or in vain. You'll see the benefits of what you're doing, which means you're going to be fruitful with labor. You're going to be fruitful as share with relationships. Put God first in your marriage. Here's going to be a little tricky for some people to understand, but your spouse should be before your, ch your children. Kids are not first. Kids are secondary. Now, my kids come before my parents because they don't live in my household. But my wife is primary over my children. My job is to get them out of the house. I want to stay in the house with her. Right? But my wife is primary in my relationship, not my children. If I put my children first, that is actually adultery of the marriage. Because I am placing them as my number one priority. A proper husband will love God first, then wife. And through that, I will take care of my children the proper way. I'm not saying neglect your children. But putting them in the proper perspective. And if you have fruitful as share relationships, your spouse. See how that's going to bless and grow? And then that's going to spill out. Whenever we have blessings, it spills out. And so if I have a proper relationship with my wife, what's that going to do with my children? They're going to see the properness, and it's going to spill out upon them. And then when I have proper relationships with my wife and my children, how's that going to spill out within the church and in the community? When we do it in the right way, we're going to be blessed with proper relationships. It says that your wife is going to be the vine in there. What, what, what's the vine for? That's life-giving resources to your garden. Your wife is going to be this life-giving thing that keeps giving more and more fruits. And I'm not talking about children. I'm talking about the blessings of who she is that God has called her to be and gifted her to be. It also says children will be like olive shoots 
That is very key. It didn't say branches. You cannot overestimate the role of olives in the ancient East. They aren't branches. They are shoots. They are individual plants that come up out of the blessings of that relationship that can stand on their own in time. They're not a branch. They are a shoot. So each one will then produce his or her own kind in years. And when we have this way, it's productive and it's fruitful and it keeps growing and growing. That's the first one. As a sheer, blessed means happens to us. The second one is Barak. And that one's in verses 4 through 5. And it describes what God does in the relationship. So the first one happens to us, but Barak. And it's a kid's. Hey, kids, say Barak. There you go. Okay, the first Barak is blessing our nation will prosper. I think there was a long time that our nation prospered. But unfortunately, that isn't happening anymore. When a nation's people fear the Lord, that people will see the prosperity of their nation because God is on them. Whether it's Jerusalem, Washington, or Wall Street, remember the blessing is for those who are in Christ. And because of that, those blessings spill out onto them and into the rest. And so when we have a rock blessing from God, it will spill out to the rest of the community. We can't believe God is going to bless America just because we ask Him to. If our people are not pursuing a relationship with God, if all we're pursuing is church attendance, then God is not in it. And it said those who follow and obey, or hear and obey what God says, then these blessings will happen. The second blessing comes from a saving relationship with God, or long life. Verse 6 says that you will see your children's children. Now, you need to know this is not an absolute promise. Even the Hebrew doesn't say this. This is a general promise. Uh, There are committed godly people who do die young. So we're not saying this is an absolute guaranteed promise. The, The Hebrew here is a general promise. But in general, those who walk with God do walk longer. And this has been medically verified. People who live honestly for Jesus have a longer lifespan than people who don't. 2018 study published by the Journal of Social, Psychological, and Personality Science showed that religiously affiliated people live between five and nine years longer than the general people who don't have faith. Just believing in God and living that way is going to add five to nine years of your life. A similar study uh, published by the Journal of American Medical Association showed that women who attend religious services at least once a week, at least once, that doesn't mean once a month, I mean once a week, were associated with five-fold lower rate of suicide and depression. Just coming to church and living in your faith, coming to service at least once a week, meant that you are five times less likely to fall into suicidal patterns and belief systems than those who don't go. Still another study reported that people who attend uh, religious services regularly, which meant once a week, experienced less stress and were 55% less likely to die under the stressful loads on their heart and minds. That's a huge difference 
in living in faith and not. Medical science studies have shown that when you live for God, you have a longer life. Well, we just read that in Psalm 128. God has proven it. The triumph of 128, of Psalm 128, the results are that you are going to see. Now hear this. The triumph of 128 is that you're going to see what you place your trust in God. And 127 makes the trouble of 126 not that big of a deal. It makes it worthwhile, not all in vain. The biggest encouragement of the Psalm of Ascent is to remember these were sung on their way up. When we have faith, when we are living our faith, we are going somewhere. If you got on a ship that had no rudder, you're not going to go anywhere. It's, it's just chance that you're going to end up somewhere. We want to go to a specific destination, and we in our spiritual journey are going somewhere. We are stuck, or we, are, we aren't stuck. Trust will grow out of trouble. Triumph results from trust. There are many people who don't want to go through the troubles of this life. Jesus promised you're going to have troubles. He promised you're going to have troubles. But if you put your trust in Him, what will you receive? The victory, the triumph. We don't have to stay in that valley. Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, of troubles... I will fear no evil. I will have trust. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And what? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, which is triumph. There's people here who have troubles. Are you trusting God to lead you in the... The troubles? Are you trusting that God is going to guide you if you turn your life, you turn your focus to be back on God? There's a difference between being a tourist and a pilgrim of the faith. A tourist wants to go see the sights and take pictures. You know, Jerry Store, he's not living in Canada, he was a tourist. He took pictures. But a pilgrim of the faith is not going to focus on the pictures, is going to look at how do I get to my destination. Jerry wanted to come back home. And as pilgrims of our faith, we need to get home. Which is not here. It's in heaven. So what are you doing to trust God through the troubles of this world? Because one day you will be given the victory. You'll be given the triumph of entering into heaven. A pilgrim goes somewhere to be in that location. If you see your life as a pilgrimage of wanting to go through on this ascent, the song of ascent, of journeying towards a higher relationship and eventually the dwelling of God. What are you doing in your journey? Are you making sure that you are focused? Because remember, to, to raise godly children means I've got to be a godly parent. To be a godly parent means I've got to be a godly spouse. And to be a godly spouse means I need to be godly. And if I do all those, I'm going to sleep so much more in his rest and peace. I promise that we'd see how to be a godly parent, spouse, and sleep better. I didn't say it'd be easy. It's right here. There's only one path that can get you to all those things. There's only one way. 
There's only one way to make sure that your life is focused on Jesus. There's only one way to make sure your children are going to be aimed and sharpened for the target of living for faith and eventually going to heaven. There's only one way, and that is Jesus. There are some people today here who have not chosen Jesus. We want to make sure you have that opportunity. We'd love for you to come talk with us, to talk with the elders or Dustin and I after, and we'd like to talk to you about how not our triumph, but how God gives a triumph for the people who trust in Him. If you are dealing, if you are dealing with struggles and troubles of your life, we just read Scripture notes. So if you need talking with that, we'd love to meet with you and help you see how you can trust God in that so that you can live in the, the triumph. Wherever you are, what are you going to do with your life from this point? We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. And if you need to make it a decision, won't you come and talk to us? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you that we don't have to live on our own, that we don't have to try and trust our own understandings, but that we can trust in your faithfulness. We can trust in your steadfast love and your promises. And as we looked into your scriptures today, God, I ask that you have help all of us to make a decision to go through the cycle of trust or of troubles trust so we can see the triumph of living in faith. And I thank you, God, that we can see that triumph through your son on the cross. Father, this may this next song be one that shows our faith and our trust in you. Let us sing it out to you, God, for you are our Savior. And in your name we all pray. Thank you.